Hello, everyone. San Francisco. This is KXSF LP, and you are listening to Fifth Wave Radio, Queerly Drinking. I am Pamela Louie, and for the next two hours, you're going to be hearing lots of talk. Not not much music today, just just some chatter, but good stuff. Uh, my guest in just a few minutes is Meridu uh, Chandra, who is a BAFTA and Emmy-nominated filmmaker whose films have premiered at Sundance, Telluride, and South by Southwest. And we'll be discussing her upcoming documentary, Sond versus Cochran, uh, about Dalip Singh Sond, the first Asian American elected to Congress. Uh, so that'll be just in a few minutes. And at three o'clock, we will have um, Kate Kendall, who is a longtime racial, social justice, and equity advocate. Kate led the National Center for Lesbian Rights for 22 years and is currently the Chief of Staff at the California Endowment, the largest health equity foundation in California. So we'll be uh, getting to that in just a few minutes. In the meantime, though, I'm just going to play a little bit of music just for a few minutes while, while we all get our bearings here. We all, we all being me and me and the board. Uh, and we'll be back in in just a quick minute. Okay. Hello. Okay, we are back. So, as promised, uh, we're going to be having more chatter today. Hopefully, most of it won't be my chatter. It will be a, a, my guest chatter. Uh, so, this is Miridu uh, Chandra, who is a, as I mentioned before, is a... Um, God, I'm just going to let you talk about what you've done. Because I feel like when whenever I do it and I'm just sort of like reading off a copy and it just doesn't come off. I mean, it comes off as being just very like, I don't know. I won't say non-authentic because I do, I do have a lot of respect for everything you've done, but I always feel like people can discuss their background and accomplishments more than another person can. So please hmm. Miradu, let just, if you could just tell our listeners about yourself, but you're a very accomplished filmmaker. Um, you've done, Thank you've you. done, I've been watching your documentaries and I'm just really super impressed by what you've done. But if you could maybe just give everyone a little bit about your background uh, and how you became a filmmaker. Sure. Um, but first of all, thank you for having me on the show. Um, I was very opportune. It was an opportune moment when I met you in San Francisco a few weeks ago and really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my work. Um and if it inspires some people, great. Um, but I will also say it's sometimes better for other people to talk about you because you sound like you're gloating. Uh, but since you've passed the baton to me, um, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm based in New York. And I moved here because I wanted to make films. And um, I did that after grad school you know, many years ago and um, came to New York, not LA, because I felt like the interesting people were here um, in terms of race, gender identity, and all kinds of things that speak truth to Hollywood. And that was based on stuff I used to watch, eclectic films in high school. Um, and I think I was right um, because I'm still here and I've had a career for 25 years. Um, I started working at public television in New York as an intern and worked my way up to being a producer pretty quickly. Um, because I just kept meeting people who were making great projects. I really followed in their footsteps. Um, but to back up and say what I do, I'm a producer. And that, and by that, I mean, I'm a creative producer. So I do research for independent documentaries and um, 
work with different directors to tell stories that are outside of the mainstream narrative that we see in the media. And um, that's what I've been doing for 25 years. Um, and just last year, I was nominated for a BAFTA award, which is the British Academy Award, um, comparable to the Oscars, but British, uh, for a film called Becoming Cousteau, which is about oceanographer Jacques Cousteau. And I was also nominated for an Emmy last year for a film called Cured, um, which is about gay activists in the 70s who um, fought the American Psychiatric Association to take, they challenged them, let's say, to take homosexuality out of the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistics Manual. Success, well, and they were successful. Yes, well, I think that the films that you've done, I think are extremely timely, just as far as this, a lot of the issues that are concerning us today, for instance, like Cousteau, and, mm -hmm. you know, we're not just talking about oceanography, but also how the oceans are being changed and and so many species in the oceans are, are be becoming extinct because of climate change and how the ocean temperatures are rising and how the acidifications of the ocean are also leading to get just beyond from the coral reefs to just other uh, types of life in the ocean is being eradicated. Uh, and then with Cured, yeah, you, we see what's happening in Florida right now. Mm. And with the, you know, this attempt to legislate transgender people out of existence, essentially. Uh, yeah, so I think it's it's really timely and I'm sure we'll, we will get, there's a, we'll definitely get to that. No question about that. Uh, yeah. you, you, you are, you are on my show. So we're going to get to that. I think my listeners yeah, I mean, probably I think at this one point thing, know. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. I think one thing that inspires me about all of these stories that I work on is that they're about social change and it's not so much, um, that me, the filmmakers doing that. Although I do believe in the practice of film, you know, independent filmmaking as being something that creates change. But, um, I also, but all the people that we're making films about, if you look at my whole trajectory, it's about people who made change. So it's their inspiring stories in the end. Um, you know, Cousteau didn't start out as a conservationist. He was uh, an explorer first and a filmmaker. And he used to put bombs under the oceans and blow up fish to study them. And as he saw, he witnessed his own actions over decades of time, he changed. And so that's really the story that the director I worked with, Liz Garbus, wanted to pull out is, you know, becoming this conservationist. That's why it's called Becoming Cousteau. It's about who he was through all of his years uh, as an imperfect hero. Um, and then how he became, a con you know, an avid um, speaker for the environment and for the oceans. But no one was listening when he finally spoke. Uh, so he was somebody that uh, is really important for us to look at today because he he gave us that chance 30 years ago. Yeah, well, I th it's, it's great. I, I remember when uh, the film first came out and seeing it, so I was like, this is something I want to see. And it was great just to, as I was doing some research and watching the, the film and yeah, it's a really good movie. Um, and, and But all of your documentaries, everything that I've seen anyway, is it's really like done is top notch. Um, and I mean, cause like there's in documentary filmmaking, there's definitely, there's a, there's like a wide berth. It's not like every single documentary mm -hmm. is like a, you know, seriously researched, uh, honest, and at the same time, like engaging 
piece piece of art you know there there was a, a wide berth there so i, I was you. yeah no I, I was really impressed with that and i was wondering like how do you choose which projects you're going to take on do uh filmmakers directors come to you or do you find out about projects and approach people Sure, um, both. But if I can speak to what you said first, um, aside from thanking you profusely for the compliments, it's um, it's really, uh, you know, documentary is such a common, you know, people watch documentaries a lot now, and um, it's a word that's used broadly. But when I started uh, in this field, it was a pretty small group of people who were from uh, ABC, you know, CBS, the news units that formed documentary long form units and also within the public television world, which is a, a broad array of independent filmmakers. So they there was a smaller group than there are now. And that group of people are all based on, you know, they base their work on this they pride their work on the research and really pulling out untold stories and providing fresh perspectives. And it takes two to three years minimum to make a film like that. Um, and now, and I'm not necessarily disrespecting the field, is ju I'm just saying that the word documentary is applied to so many things that are non-scripted television. Um, so anything that's not with actors. Um, and that can be a broad, broad range of things. Um, so for sure, there's like uh, we rely on the critical thinking of our audiences to to see what they want to um, see and to judge accordingly. Right. Um, because there's value in all of it. Sometimes sure. you really just want to watch a true crime documentary or sometimes you want to watch something that's more reality. But but these research based films is is, you know, the genre that I kind of came came from and continue to do. Um, and I would say that everything started with my first film. Um, I, when I moved to New York, I found myself as an intern and then it kind of, uh, it's sort of a place of privilege where I was like, oh, I didn't come here just to make TV because even public television can be just TV. Um, and I started asking around to, to find people um, and someone, an editor I knew introduced me to Bennett Singer, who is one of the two directors of a film about Bayard Rustin. It's called Brother Outsider. And Bayard Rustin was a uh, openly gay uh, activist um, who worked in the civil rights movement, in the anti-war movement, in peace movement in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s. And um, when they were making this film, I learned that he was also a Gandhian activist. So he, there was a group of people looking at what Gandhi was doing in India and I was like, oh, I have to work on this film. You know, I was young enough to say something like that. Um, and they just stayed in touch with me. And um, the research process to dig his story out of history and out of the archives, because no one knew who he was until 1963. So it took us three years to go to archives and find unmarked cans or cans that just said activists in front of City Hall to find all the visual materials to tell the story of his life and the significant role that he played in civil rights and in advising Dr. Martin Luther King. But um, the long story short is working on that film and the impact that film had on um, our knowledge of civil rights history. And, uh, you know, in 2013, President Obama awarded him posthumously the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And now President Obama's company 
is creating a fiction film about Bayard Rustin. So that's like a sea change from him never being mentioned in civil rights books in Harvard or in any college textbook um, to now no one talking about civil rights without talking about Bayard Rustin, a gay man, um, is pretty astounding. And that's what's kept me going all of my career, that one film and the uh, impact of that one film. Um, and how, so everything you do leads you to other similar people, right? So when people see that film and they saw the research done, sometimes people have found me based on that research or based, and I, you know, I didn't make that film alone. It was two directors and then other researchers, but um, I, I did work on it for four years and I was the co-producer. So somehow people find me because I'm working on an activist film. Sorry, they are, and they want that um, vision, you know, that perspective. Um, and, or I find them, um, I've, you know, the Brother Outsider film went to Sundance and um, every time, you know, you go to a film festival, you meet other filmmakers and you see their work. And then if you like their work, of course, you want to be their friend. That's how it works. And then through that friendship um, and through time, people are working on another project. So I would say in 25 years, I've applied for a job twice um, with people I didn't know. Uh, most of it has developed organically. And then I work on a project for two or three to four years. So even if something overlaps, I'm not always looking. Um, and so it's a combination of people finding me um, and then I find them. And the reason I'll say yes to a project now, I mean, when I was younger, I would say yes, no matter what, but um, it's really dependent on the vision of the director. And uh, I'll give you an example. I worked on a film um, with a guy who was my intern. Uh, and then many years later, we ran into each other and he was working on a film about the high-end madam of New Orleans. And um, that sounds exciting, could be, could go any direction. And so I said, well, you know, I'd love to see what you've got. And we spent a couple of days watching his, the footage that he had been shooting over the past three years and talking about like the impact we wanted um, we didn't want to make a salacious story about three generations in one family that were running a brothel in New Orleans for years, uh, which is the truth. Um, we wanted to tell a story about sex work and um, the legal and social implications and who gets who has to deal with that. You know, the senators who went to her, the doctors, lawyers, dentists who went to her and worked um solicited her services, never went to prison, but she was busted by the FBI. And then she couldn't work, you know, for years after that, she had a felony charge. And um, so we're looking at it from a different perspective. So once we agreed on that perspective, I was with him till the end. You know, what's, what's the name of that film again? It's called The Canal Street Madam. Okay. The Cal Street Madam. Great. Yeah. I'm going to write that one down because I'd, I'd love to see that if, if it's available anywhere, it is. I can find it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. Well, great. Uh, so let's so talk. It's always about the vision of the director and their perspective. You know, sometimes I'll say no, just because I know it's, you know, like I'm not the right person for this film. We don't have the same um, idea of what we want this film to do in terms of speaking to the mainstream media. And that's just really organic. You just feel it. So do you feel like you're, you're really directing your films toward like the mainstream media or mainstream audience, or would you say it's, it's more like, and as far as the choices you make as well, are those with keeping that in mind or 
are you okay with saying this may not be for everyone, but this is what artistically we want to do? That's a great question. Um, I'm not sure I was ever so conscious of thinking about that clearly, but I think I've always wanted to just make art. And so when I see that in someone, I, I'm ready to do something out of nothing. Like we have no budget. I'll help you write grants. I'm going to help you think about it. How do we, but, um, but the goal is to get the broadest possible audience. It's not to just stay in Greenwich village to only people who watch documentaries. You know, that used to be the joke a long time ago is that the big, you know, people who made documentaries would get shown at like some theater in the West village and their 20 friends would come see it. But, um, but, but for, that, that was a long time ago because there aren't any theaters in the West Village now. That's true. There's well, just they're, the, there's... There. they're just not they're empty. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, but I think uh, from the impact of Brother Outsider, so it like I said, it went to Sundance and shocked and surprised and excited all of us. It also aired on public television on Martin Luther King Day. So even though when we started that film. We were rejected by 20 foundations. Everyone was like, who is Bayard Rustin? Um, after we made the film and showed that, everybody wanted it and still do, even though it's a 20-year-old film. Um, so that showed us that we can get like broad mainstream awareness of a project. And that's always been the goal. So I have um, creatively impacted some films that way where I've asked my filmmaker, do you want this to be a niche audience film? Like, for gay film festivals, or do you want this to go broader? And let if so, because if you want that first one, that's fine. I'm already with you. But if you want the broader audience, let's think about different ways we can, um, you know, add one more person to give an alternate view or to make it uh, add an, you know, another interviewee. What are ways that can stay true to your vision, but that will attract a wider audience? And those involve long story conversations. But, but the answer is we want, we don't want to just sit in a silo. Uh, the goal is always a broad audience and to get people who um, would never see this film to enjoy it and to think about it. Yeah. So it, it sounds like to me, just from seeing what you've done that in addition to being a producer a lot of your like your wheelhouse is also archival research yes and so and i was wondering about that like how what your process is for that mm. because because it's i mean like i was a history major in college it's a whole different thing though i mean when you're like doing it as from academically uh as opposed to like doing a project that is going to be that you want it to be commercially viable and that's going to go out into the bigger world and academia is it's still academia it doesn't there are very few people who read academic books even I mean there, there's the thing you know publisher perish but the truth is that very often when you're publishing you're publishing for others in academia what you've right. been doing is you're publishing for a much bigger audience. So I know I, I know it would probably take you a long time to talk about the process, but maybe if you could just sort of break it down some of the the basic steps for archival research. And, and I ask that truly out of my just it's something that I'm very interested in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sure. Um, well, we do certainly start with just general scholarship, right? So you need to know what you're looking for in terms of the story. So creating a timeline. Um, of events, if it's a person that you're making a biography about, or if it's, um, but it's, you know, a timeline of like, 
um, now I'm working on a film about Dalip Singh Son. So that's a great example to talk about is um, where was he? When was he born? Where? So those are all ideas because the goal is to find, I can't make a film. I could certainly write an article about it after I do the research, but I can't make a film unless I find visual materials. So ultimately I'm going to go to photo radio and television archives and hope that there's material there or to try to imagine ways to tell the story visually. Um, but we start with the primary research. So, you know, his life story where he was born, um, where uh, he lived, he was a farmer in Westmoreland, California. So I've got some keywords, Westmoreland. Is there film footage of Westmoreland from anywhere in the 1930s? Um, it doesn't have to be his farm, particularly. Um, it's a dream. I'm just creating like a list of where he was, what year, um, other world events that took place, like he lived through, uh, he was inspired to come to America when he read Indian newspapers that printed World War, um, sorry, Woodrow Wilson's speeches about democracy in World War One. So that gives you a location, a setting, and a fact to look for in the archives, right? Um, so it's really starting with that timeline and then looking at what kind of media existed during those eras. So, uh, you know, it's hard because the story took place in 1956, but um, I know there's ABC, NBC, and CBS that created media. They all had corresponding radio. There might even be other local radio stations. There were certainly newspapers. So that's where I started, um, is the newspaper research to really dig the story out of the archives. Um, and I've collected 2000 newspaper articles about his political campaign against Jackie Cochran Odlum, who was a World War II leader. She is really uh, astounding herself uh, as a person. Um, and she trained 1200 women pilots in World War II. Brought, she convinced President Roosevelt and the Air Force leadership to bring women into the world war to the war effort when we needed them most. Um, she also was a businesswoman and a um, daredevil pilot from the 1930s. So I'm trying to figure out in this film why Dalip Singh Sand won, mm -hmm. and uh, you know that research question spawns everything. Okay, well we'll get back to that in just a minute yeah. because that's I did want to talk about about this film. Uh, for those of you just turning, tuning in, you're listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. This is Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking. This is I am Pamela Louie, and my guest is Miri Du Chandra, who is a filmmaker of uh, numerous films, including uh, Becoming Cousteau, which was nominated for a BAFTA Award, Brother Outsider, Cured, and uh, upcoming film Sound versus Shock uh, Cochran. We'll be back in just a moment. All right. Well, so we are back. Uh, you are listening to Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking, and our guest today is Miradu uh, Chandra, who is a filmmaker and has a new or is working on a new documentary, uh, Sand versus Cochran. So you started talking about it a little bit before the break. Yeah. Let, yeah. Let's talk about this movie. Uh, first of all, what 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 is the what's this movie about? Yeah, so this movie is about the first Asian American congressman in US history. His name is Dalip Singh Sand. He was a South Asian man of Sikh, Sikh Indian descent. Um, and he came to this country in 1920 to study at Berkeley. And he 
he left Berkeley with a PhD in math, but um, was unable to get a job because at that time, Asians were not allowed citizenship in this country. So he became a farmer. Um, and there were many Indian farmers um, at the time. I mean, not like a ton, but there were Indian farmers across uh, in California. And um, he became a successful farmer, started a business, but he always remained interested in American politics. And after he was able to become a citizen, because the law changed, um, he ran for a judgeship and was elected and served as a judge for almost six years before he ran for Congress. Um, and so my film is called Sond versus Cochran, and it looks at the year of 1956 when he ran against um, a very accomplished woman, Jackie Cochran Odlum, uh, who was also known as Jackie Cochran, which is why it's called Sond versus Cochran. Um, and uh, it looks at their campaign. So it's, a, it's basically like a, you know, political story about two people who ran for Congress, uh, one wins, but uh, looks at all the dramatic twists and turns that happened during that year. Uh, she beat out five very conservative Republican men to get onto the ballot. Um, and he beat out one guy who tried to disqualify him on account of his race and ethnicity. Um, but then he was elected and put on the ballot in the primaries. And then there were even more twists and turns, which I want to reveal in the film um, until he won. So I'm really trying to look at a story of how democracy works and how elections work uh, on a local level. Um, and sometimes uh, these, these stories become national. And that's what happened in 1956 because she was so famous as a daredevil aviator from the 30s. She was the first woman to pass the sound barrier in a small plane. Um, in 1953, that happened. And so when she ran for Congress, it, it was immediately picked up by the national press. And so as a result, Sand was getting press as well. And um, that was kind of an astounding story to find that I read during the pandemic and just was like, how come we don't learn about this in school? Why do we think that the past is you know, purely white, um, or, you know, that we don't hear these stories of political inclusion. Uh, and I think that it speaks quite a lot to today in terms of what, you know, the story that unfolded was the challenges Cochrane faced as a woman, but also the challenges he faced as a person of color. Those, we still see those questions that are asked to women and people of color today. You know, can you represent as a foreigner? Um, are you even a foreigner? Um, you must be because you're not white. Um, if you're a woman, what will happen to your family if you become a congresswoman? Uh, all kinds of questions that we still see um, being asked of people who run for Congress and even higher positions today in vice president and president. Yeah, no, it's it's true. Like, I mean, like what? So, so this you discovered the story during the pandemic. Yes. Yeah, and um, was was it your idea to do it, or was there somebody else who who had been working on or thinking about it? No, it was my idea to look into it further. Um, I just started reading about uh, American history. It was one of those books that I had in my apartment. And since I was in my apartment all the time, I was like, oh, I haven't read this. Let me read it. And I, I became fascinated by Dilip Singh Sand first. But the more I read about it, him, I became fascinated with Jackie Cochran, Odlum. And why don't we know about her either? Why do we all know about Amelia Earhart? But we don't know about somebody who accomplished a lot of the things Amelia Earhart wanted to do. And uh, then we don't know that she 
about her as the leader of the WASP, the Women's Air Force Service Pilots in World War II. So I felt like both of these characters were like uh, deserved attention um, and awareness. And I wish I had learned about them when I was growing up in Virginia. Um, so that's how it started. And, you know, like I said, I'm always driven by the vision of my directors. This time it's me. So this is the first film in 20 years that I'm going to direct myself because um, I have that same obsession that I see in my directors with this story. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm motivated to move it forward. So yeah, well, that, my next question was if you ever about directing, if you ever want to direct, but you are directing this. So so obviously you do. Uh, yeah, but I think it is a really compelling story. And, and I haven't seen the film, I know, because it's it's not ready to be shown. But it, it is an interesting story because, it, yeah, it is. You have the it's a race. There is this woman and then there is a person of color who are running against each other. Uh, yeah. Why do you think that Jackie Cochran didn't get the recognition that, let's say, Amelia Earhart received? Because. You know, it's not like these are two, they're both women. Right. Yeah. And they were both, well, you know, like in the 1930s, America in the whole world, I think, was obsessed with like um, small planes and flying and the possibility of that. Um, and there were daredevil pilots all over the country. And I'm reading, the more I find out, there were women in this field. Um, I mean, I think you had to have some level of privilege to then become a pilot in the first place, but um, people would go to the air shows on the weekends in America and watch these pilots do twists and turns in the air. And like, they would imagine the future, you know, kind of like we are a little bit today in the space race, or, you know, when we think about going to space. Um, but Amelia Earhart captured everyone's imagination and also um, it, our awareness of history because she disappeared. Um, but there are lots of women that we don't know about who were pilots. Um, and also, like I said, 1,200 women entered World War II to serve this country. And um, they were pilots. And then when they were disbanded after, uh, they were kind of let go back into the regular civilian world without any pension without any future. Um, and that story kind of resurfaced in the last 10 years. Um, Obama recognized their service in World War II and granted some uh, people benefits, which they weren't given um, before. They weren't given military um, funeral or pension benefits because they weren't considered military. All these women were considered volunteers. But to answer your question, why we don't know Cochrane today, it's complicated because she also um, is a complicated woman. Um, she was married to the fourth wealthiest person, man in this country. Um, she didn't always, although she wanted women to be as part of the military, she, um, she has a complicated legacy uh, and then came back um, yeah, I guess I have to, there's a lot I have to explain about her, but I think partly it's because she has a complicated legacy that she wasn't seen as a hero. Um, and that's something we'll have to show in the film as well. Yeah, I think I might've read, or maybe it was something that, that you shared with me that uh, her campaign used Son's race against him too. That's right. Yeah. Um, so she was complicated in terms of women um, having to go back to household work afterwards, um, serving in the war. But then she was also complicated in this race, even though she was highly accomplished and 
worked very hard to win this campaign um, after the primaries that I'd mentioned earlier, when it was just her against Sand, uh, she focused her campaign on his um, ethnicity and said that a vote for him would be wasted because his own party, the Southern Democrats, would ignore him because a lot of them uh, you know, wouldn't listen to a brown person in Congress. And interestingly, so like a vote for Son would be a wasted vote. That was her campaign strategy. And she never specifically said his religion, but she did call out his uh, being a foreigner or, and this color of his skin. So I think it's time and I think we're ready. You know, a lot of biographers have sort of um, of Jackie Cochran haven't really talked about it, partly because she lost, right? So that's a small chapter in her biography of major accomplishments that they did talk about. But I feel like um, as a society where we can talk about it now and talk about how that could have implications for what we face today. Um, it's a story about inclusion or exclusion in, in the fabric of this country. Um, and so I want to you know, present this story because I believe we're ready for it to have an adult mature conversation. Um, but that does complicate her legacy for sure. Yeah. So, so and so, uh, so Son himself, it, so he was elected in what was it, 1956? Uh, he was elected in 1956 and he right. served three terms. So he was reelected twice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. What type of a congressperson was he? Like, what? what is just like, just politically, what's his legacy? Yeah, um, well, because he was the first Asian of any kind of Asian uh, ethnicity, he was um, feted all over Washington. Uh, and um, he served as an example of democracy abroad. So the U.S. government has a history of doing that with prominent Black musicians and entertainers. It's like sending them to Asia to try to win the hearts and minds of Asia so they wouldn't go towards communism. Um, and they did the same with Sand. Uh, it's a little bit of my interpretation. They put him on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which for a first time congressman is astounding. Um, but interestingly, to show something of his personality, you know, he had been a farmer for 30 years in California. He wanted to be on the insular committee and the interior committee. He didn't wanna be on the Foreign Affairs Committee, but he understood the significance of it. So he said, yes, and he served in the way that the government wanted. He went to Asia. He showed, um, he talked about getting elected by dem democratic means and said that would never happen in any other country, not in a communist country, not in a dictatorship, et cetera. Um, and then after doing that for two years, he asked, can I also be on the Interior Affairs Committee? And they gave him that too. So he then worked on water rights, which is what he wanted to do. It's a big issue in California, as you know. Um, he also worked on veteran affairs, I believe. There's one um, veterans hospital that would credit Dilip Singh Sand for um, staying alive in Southern California. Um, so he helped a lot of veterans. Um, he also brokered a deal with the Agua Caliente Indians um, in, his, in his district that allowed them retain ownership of their rights, um, but also allowed California, um, you know, access to water that they needed. Um, and those details, you know, will also be part of the postscript of the film, because I'm really focused on the election campaign. But of course, it's important to know what he did once he served. Um, so he always had, like any congressman, you know, but he did have his district needs at in mind. 
and he served. Oh, and the fun thing is that was also a time when a lot of congressmen made these like films that they would send back to their district. So he would like report from Congress, um, you know, what's up in D.C. and also what he's doing for his district and send these film reels home. So those are some things I've already found for the film, which is kind of exciting. So where where are you right now with the film? Uh, Still in the beginning, because I'm uh, doing a lot of the research, you know, like we were talking about how everything has to start with the scholarship. And there isn't a lot of scholarship, you know, uh, Cochrane's biographers haven't really delved into her campaign, like I said, because she lost and she has so many aviation feats to talk about. And Sand's people who've written about Sand haven't really looked at this election campaign. So I'm still in the early stages with 2000 newspaper articles, fleshing out the story of 1956 America. Uh, And now I'm at a place where I'm starting to go to TV archives. So like I just wrote to CBS yesterday. Um, I just wrote to the UCLA TV archive today with my list of things that I've researched. Um, So really trying to find the visual materials now to, um, but what I have done, is I've also looked at their personal papers. Jackie Cochran gifted her papers to the American public um, and put them in the Eisenhower Library in Kansas. So I spent time there and uh, she was meticulous because she was famous from a young age. Uh, She was meticulous at um, filing and keeping records of her accomplishments and also of her life. And she was also, she also owned a cosmetics business, interestingly. So there's 300 plus boxes in Kansas um, at the Eisenhower Library that are astounding. Like it's a national treasure for sure. And then Sans papers are much smaller. It's about 14 boxes at UC Santa Barbara. And um, I've spent time with their personal papers. And now I'm looking at the bigger archives, the mainstream media, in the hopes that I will find some gems. Yeah. So we need to take another break right now, but it just, uh, before we do that, I just want to say it like, this makes me want to be a researcher. I want to be become an archival researcher. It's it sounds so cool. Uh, but alas, I do have a few other things that I'm doing, including this, this cool show. show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, we'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. Okay, uh, for those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. This is Fifth Wave Radio, Queerly Drinking. I am DJ Pamela Louie, and my guest is Miradu Chandra, who is a filmmaker and is in the midst of working on a new documentary called Asan vs. Cochran about the first Asian-American elected to the U.S. Congress in 1956, uh, which is a, a great story because it's not just about Song, but it's also about his opponent, Jackie Cochran, who was a daredevil pilot, was the first woman to break the sound record uh, and it's it sounds to me like there was so much because it was it was a woman versus a person of color going against each other and this was as you know the 66 years ago uh so <laughs> had to do the quick math there oh, and where we're talking about so many of these issues today and inclusion inclusion uh, uh based on gender inclusion of of people of color and the documentary world now as you clearly know is just it's so there are so many documentaries that are out there and what's the great about it is that 
because there are more that are out there and you can get them on streaming services. Netflix has a bunch, Amazon has a bunch. So it's not like you need to go to like an arts theater in a city to see them. Uh, yet the other side though, is because there are so many documentaries out there. That doesn't mean every documentary is well-researched. Like as we were discussing before, where the scholarship is good. And, and I think, yeah, there are some that are used like purely as propaganda. And I don't think anyone could ever say that a documentary or any film doesn't have a point of view. I mean, you, there's no such thing as being completely objective. But you can also do you can also create a documentary or or any piece of art uh, in a way that is, let's say, based on facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of what you do with the facts is something else. But you have the facts. And now you see there are projects like uh, Dinesh D'Souza's 2000 Miles that spread misinformation. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but I I personally haven't seen it because I just don't really, you know, but I've read a lot about it. And that's not the only one that's out there. Uh, do you feel like that gives documentary film a bad name? Oh, it's such a challenging time um, because I think... I want to remain optimistic, otherwise I would never do the work that I do, um, to say that audiences and that people are able to, or not able, let's not say that, that they do employ critical thinking when they get information. Um, but I, I also know based on the political uh, elections and uh, that they don't, like sometimes people are reading news from a very closed circle and they believe it. Um, and it, that misinformation works, right? So that's what we've seen in the last four to five years. Um, it works in large numbers and that's the, you know, that's really depressing, but all I can keep doing, you know, I don't have an answer for that. All I know is all I can keep doing is making the work that I'm making and hope that it reaches broad audiences and develops this critical thinking so that people know what, what they're getting when they listen to the news. And, um, you know, you don't all, you don't want to listen to the news as like a profit. You want to also have other sources. You want to um, validate what you're reading, but uh, it's really tough times. But you know, one thing, what you said, it's a film about these two astounding people, right? It's also a film about 1956 America and the voters, because that's what I find is the most inspiring thing about my film. It's not the first Asian congressman. It's not this daredevil pilot, both awesome. It's the voters, because people across both Democratic and Republican spectrum voted for Dalip Singh Sand. And they turned out, first of all, they turned out for the to vote. And it was an astounding 80% uh, voter turnout, which is astounding for any election, local or national, even today. Um, and so that's what I, I feel can speak to today is like political engagement, just definitely voting and participating, and then exercising your right to vote. Like, so it's the same thing I just said in two different ways. <laughs> but America is the third character. And I think if we look at it this time that democracy worked and voted a person of color in fair and square, uh, that's something that can speak volumes for today. Well, yeah, we definitely, we you know, had an election last night and yes, you know, it's, it's, that's, a, it's interesting. And that's, that's like a whole other thing. And I, I suspect, no doubt, there will be documentary films made about this election cycle as as well. Uh, 
I don't, I, I think like the big story with this election is, is not so much that they're about the number of women or the people of color who've been elected. There's, you know, there's a other, you know, it's unfolding today. It's what, what the story is and what some of those stories are. Uh, yeah. But I, I just, I just want to go back to what I was um, kind of asking before, or just mentioning about there being a very, uh, in terms of the quality of documentary films that are out there. How do you think that viewers could apply more critical thinking skills and be, be more discerning when they when they see films? And you know, whether it's a film that you make, whether it's a film that Dinesh D'Souza makes, whether it's a film that Ken Burns makes, I think if if you are, you always have to look at something with a critical eye. Um, I think right. that, yeah, I think that with some documentary filmmakers, let's say someone like, like a Ken Burns, uh, I think for a lot of people, it's just sort of like, you think Ken Burns, he knows what he's doing. So you don't think, you know, like, you're not necessarily going to be as critical. I have heard things like there, I definitely have heard some criticisms of, of uh, Ken Burns, different documentaries over the year. But, but what would you say to people who are listening, who want to, who, who are wondering how they could look at documentaries um, and not necessarily just look at them at face value? What do you think are some, are, what are, are some tips well, I think it's always um, about looking at the power structures that create the knowledge and, and awareness that we have, right? So uh, no one can be without, like, even I have a point of view, right? So, but I guess if you, if you look at the films I've made, they are um, not coming from ABC documentary unit, although I have great respect for that. They're not coming from Netflix, although I have great respect for that. The good ones that are coming from that. So, but look at the power structure behind the media that is supporting the creation of what you're watching and then make your own judgment. So there are some documentaries that are coming out of left field. They're not broadcast, first of all, on any major television station. So they're not necessarily abiding by journalistic standards. And maybe they were funded by a think tank or by a foundation, a single foundation. Well, who's what's the political view of that foundation, right? So that's like a very extreme kind of documentary that exists out there. But like if you're looking at Dinesh D'Souza or like other people, um, then it's also the then it speaks to the media establishment that's behind it. And then if you're looking at Ken Burns, for sure, you one could say, oh, public television is funded by the government. It will be more objective, um, scholarly. But also, I, I admire Ken Burns and what he's accomplished for documentaries greatly. But but then you could also argue that the work that people that are independent filmmakers, even outside, of, like even within public television, there's an independent and those independent filmmakers are speaking to what Ken Burns is, has been criticized at a few times for doing, which is providing a very mainstream, very white washed view of American history. And that doesn't mean it's not good. It means we need more voices. So you don't always need to criticize to say that we reject it. It's more about, oh, well, but there should also be another perspective. No one person should become the person who can talk about American history, which is sometimes the criticism. It's not a criticism of Ken Burns. It's a criticism of the way we all think like, oh, if it's about American history, it should be Ken Burns. Somebody recently told me you're making a film about American history. Do you want to work with Ken Burns? And I was like, well, if you know anything about my work, uh, it's very different from his. And um, for sure, I would 
you know, never say no, but it would be, I still have to express my diverse point of view, mm-hmm. right? So if there's a way for me to preserve my integrity, for sure I would. But so far that hasn't happened and I haven't met him. And, uh, you know, for sure I'd love it if he supported my work, um, which is expanding our view on American history outside of the mainstream. All of the films I've worked on are doing that. So um, that's more of what I'm interested in doing is expanding, pers- you know, the work that's out there and the perspectives that we have to look at. But I guess my ask is that people just uh, kind of look at where, I mean, people who listen to this radio show are already there in a way, I think, enlightened in a way that I would like to, you know, they're looking for a different perspective and then they listen to your show. So it's like, keep doing that with everything you absorb from the media and is just think, where's this coming from? Who's supporting it? And what's the point of view? And then do I agree with that? I have my own volition too. Um, I don't want to take that away from people and all of a sudden have people that listen to me. I'm not a prophet, right? I'm trying to participate in the conversation about what America is. And I just, I guess it's about more engagement and awareness of where our media is constructed. Well, well, I wish we had more time to talk, but alas, we, 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 we don't at the moment. Well, thanks but I will, for asking I will, such great questions. Oh, sure. I would love for you to come back on some other time and, and chat some more about this stuff. I, I think that, uh, you know what, what? Especially once the the film is completed, it that would, would be, be great, great to have you back on. So, so we, do you have any timeline right now for the movie? Um, well, I have a goal. If I can raise funding, if I can make a plug to have your viewers go to my website, sondversuscochran.com. And uh, if you can support the film, great. But there's lots of ways without money that I've listed on there that would be supportive too. So, sondversuscochran.com. If you want to know more about the film and just stay in touch. I I do have a dream to finish it in time to show it in 2024. Um, And it really just depends on how the research process goes and if I can raise the money um, through grants and through private donors by then. Otherwise, uh, we're talking three to five years is my standard, but it won't take that long. I'm pretty sure. Well, I I hope for your sake it doesn't, uh, but <laughs> also for my sake because I'd love to see it. So, uh, and I'm sure a lot of the people who are listening would be interested in seeing it as well. So, I wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you so much. And again, just if if you could just uh, give everyone your website URL again. Okay, yeah, or- it's Sand versus Cochrane. So that's S A U N D versus V S Cochrane C O C H R A N dot com. Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and again, as I said, I would love to have you back soon or as, as soon as the movie is completed anyway. Thank you. Great. Okay.